everybody, and welcome back to episode 7 of the AP World History Podcast. This episode is going to be covering chapter 21, Revolutionary Changes in the Atlantic World, 1750-1850. So basically what this episode will be covering are the revolutions. So the three major ones that we'll talk about today are um, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution. And in not in that order, the American Revolution first, and then the French Revolution, and then the Haitian Revolution. It's kind of like a domino effect. Um, The Americans have their revolution, and then they get support from France, which then not too long after the American Revolution, the French topple their government and revolt against the monarchy. And not too long after the French Revolution, the Haitians, which is a French colony, um, rebel and create their own revolution and gain their own independence. So it's very much a domino effect. So we're going to go ahead and begin with the first section, a colonial wars and fiscal crisis. So what happens in this period is kind of a fight over dominance in North America. So initially, when we think back to exploration, we know that North America was dominated by the Spanish, um, specifically the southwestern and western portion of the continent, even Florida. Um, But we do see as Spain decreases in in eminence and power that the English and the French are kind of gaining dominance in this region. But one specific country is kind of sneaky and starts taking over other colonies. And those are the Dutch or the Netherlands. The Netherlands starts taking over little bits of Spanish territory, little bits of English territory, specifically in New York in the Hudson River Valley area. And that's where we get a lot of the Pennsylvania Dutch and where we get a lot of names of the Hudson River area in New York um, comes from the Dutch, New Amsterdam region of the colonies. So when we see the decrease of power um, of Spain and Portugal um, in the New World in North and South America, we see two countries fight, begin to fight. And remember, those countries are England and France. This is what we will start to see, like the French and Indian War the seven, or the Seven Years' War. Um, and then, of course, um, later on, the, the uh, Revolution. So England and France became the dominating forces, overpowering Spain and Portugal in the New World. Um, and this tension between England and France is not something new. England and France have been at each other at each other's throats throughout history, especially throughout European history. Um, in the Middle Ages, we see them in the Hundred Years' War, um, in the Renaissance, um, the French and the British under the Tudor dynasty are constantly fighting with each other. Um, and then we see now in the colonial era of the New World, we see them again having conflict having tension they're always trying to one-up each other so the seven years war also known as the french and indian war um, was between the years of 1756 to 1763 and this is between france and england Um, on france's side we have the french and the american indians and on the english side we have british and the colonists So where is this happening, this conflict happening? Well, it's in North America, and they're fighting over dominance of the region. Who's going to have um, the dominating factor? Who's going to be the dominating force? Um, So we do see at the end of this that they're fighting over the region east of the Mississippi. So all along the 13 colonies, even north into Canada. So what ways were these two countries paying for these wars. Well, we all know that wars are very, very expensive and very um, economically depleting for a country. So what is the general or kind of go-to way that countries pay for war? Well, if you said taxes, you were correct. So they're increasing taxes, they're increasing interest on loans for their colonists or for their citizens. So we see this hike in the price citizens have to pay. And why not to get money from traditional places, you know, um, or from the same place where they would just take loans out from others or from allies? Well, they wanted to go ahead and start taxing their own people and having their revenue from their colonies um, instead of taxing the native people of their countries because they didn't want to exasperate those traditional avenues. They wanted to kind of put pressure off the mother country and put it onto the colonists, which we do see kind of backfires on the British, especially. 
So moving on to the Enlightenment and the Old Order. So we discussed the Enlightenment before break, and remember the Enlightenment is just a philosophical movement in the 18th century, so the 1700s predominantly, and it took place in Europe, began in Europe, and then of course spread to the European colonies. Um, the British colonies, the French colonies, and so on and so forth. This is how we get revolutions. And basically, it's just reform movements through rationality. So rational thought, rational ideas, um, and reforming society for the better and using rationality in order to make those reforms. So we do have several people that we've talked about, so I'm going to just quickly go through them. Copernicus, remember, is a Polish monk. He is the one that comes up with heliocentric theory. Um, the sun is the center of the universe. Everything evolves, revolves around the sun. We also have Isaac Newton, English scientist known for his physics, um, his uh, laws of physics, as well as gravity. Um, then we have Johnson, who is an Englishman, and he compiles the first English dictionary. And then we have John Locke, who basically says that the government is responsible to protect an individual's life, liberty, and property. We also have Linnaeus, who is a Swedish botanist, and he decides to categorize all living organisms, as many as he has seen or as many as has been discovered. So he kind of catalogs all of them. And then, of course, we have Diderot, which is a Frenchman who compiles a 35-volume encyclopedia of all the knowledge in the world that exists to the Western individual that they know. All the knowledge they have, he consolidates it into an encyclopedia. So John Locke, remember, is this Englishman who comes up with the ideas of life, liberty, property, where we will get in the American Revolution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, John Locke highly influences the American colonists and the writers and the framers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Um, and basically, his writing says, if a monarch violated these natural rights, these inalienable rights, these rights that we are born with, um, it doesn't matter what station in society, we are all born with the right to be alive, we are all born with the right to have liberty, and we are all born, according to Locke, to so have the right to property. Now, we will see a distinction of that in the United States, um, because property and in Europe too, but property is distinguished by social class. So if you had property and the more property you had, of course, the higher up in society you would be. Well, property is a very kind of glanced over right that the framers don't necessarily discuss um, because they say pursuit of happiness. So whatever makes you happy, you have that right. They change that for America. Um, so property isn't something that's highlighted or at least recognized initially um, as a natural born right. Um, and I think a lot of people still don't see property um, as a natural born right, um, but that's debatable. So basically, John Locke says, if a monarch violated those natural rights, people had the right to rebel against the leader. So if a leader is kind of denying you these rights that you are born with as an individual, as a human being, then you have the right to rebel against that leader and his government. Um, and this is where we see um, the Americans and the colonists um, rebel against England. So we have the social contract, which is published by Rousseau in 1762. And Rousseau is this French-Swiss intellectual, and he's a major intellectual of the Enlightenment era. And he publishes this book basically saying that the will of the people was very sacred and that the legitimacy of the monarch, which means the right for the monarch to be the monarch or the right for them to rule, laid in the hands of the people. So it had to be the people's choice to allow you to be the leader. So instead of prior to kind of these human or people dependent, we had those divine rights of kings. Remember, um, that is basically where God or gods gave the monarch or the leader the right to be that leader. Well, now we're seeing a switch. Now we're not seeing a religious connotation or connection to the monarchy, but a more public I guess, communal connotation saying that the people, the citizens are responsible for that leader being in power, like they're allowing him to be in power. The masses allow for that leader to be in power, not God, not religion, not these institutions, but the people. So this is where we have that idea. So we do all, 
a lot of the times, we kind of tend to just assume that the Enlightenment is very anti-church. Well, that's not the case in all instances. Um, Yes, there were Enlightenment thinkers and philosophers who did not care for the church or did go against the church or spoke out against the church, but many Enlightenment thinkers did not express hostility toward the church or were atheists. You did have some, I'm not going to say no Enlightenment thinkers were atheists, you did have some that probably were, but many famous ones were still Christians and still believed in religion, still believed in the church. Um, so they didn't have hostility towards them. Um, like many kind of like we generalize, we generally say, you know, it was against the church. It kind of went all this. That's a very generalized idea, but that is not the, there's always exception, you know, to the rule. Um, we do see that some monarchs support the enlightenment and they do it in, um, two ways. One, by allowing the dissemination of ideas. So the spread of ideas, dissemination means to spread, Um, as well as being patrons of intellectuals. So this means allowing those intellectuals to work, to write, to spread their ideas, um, to pay for them, um, to be able to continue to work, to live. You know, like the patron of the arts. Now these are the patrons of the intellectuals. So monarchs liked three goals that the Enlightenment thinkers kind of came up with, and that was the idea of national bureaucracies, Um, New national legal system, so kind of a united legal system instead of like regional legal, like everybody has a national legal system. And lastly, modernization of tax systems, so kind of bringing those new systems into a new age with new ideas and new reforms for all people. So if there was ever an instance where an Enlightenment thinker was attacked in his home country, so let's say I'm an Enlightenment thinker in... Italy, okay? And let's say I was attacked in my country or I was condemned or censored or threatened, you know, in any way. I could travel to another country. So I could travel to maybe England or France and be in the protection of that realm or go to a rival of my home country and be protected. So it's kind of like going into exile, but it's not a negative thing because you're under protection of another government, another system. So we do have women having a large role in the Enlightenment. So English women um, could do several things and did several things, and specifically middle class and upper class women, not the lower class or the uh, peasants, but the middle and upper class women, um, purchased intellectual books and pamphlets. They also discussed Enlightenment ideas amongst themselves, amongst um, other thinkers, and they also contributed to the intellectual movement. We see women like Mary Wollstonecraft, who is the mother of Mary Shelley. She is um, an early feminist. Um, she's also an early, um, per, uh, early uh, positive influencer for education of boys and girls. Um, she has a lot of influence on education, on rebellion, on supporting of the French Revolution, on um, equality for women, and all those types of stuff. She's very interesting. Um, Now, in France, women and the Parisian Salon. So women in France, basically their role was to host kind of get-togethers or salons. A salon is not like where you go get your hair done or anything like that. In Paris, a salon is like a room. Think of it as kind of like maybe an entertainment room or like a, I guess... Like if we're thinking about a mansion, maybe kind of like a front room where you would have your guests come in, maybe discuss, have like refreshments, but kind of like an open forum in your home. So a salon was like an open forum in these upper middle class and wealthy homes that women would open up their homes to these intellectuals, artists, um, to come in and discuss different things. So who attended these salons? We'd have philosophers, we'd have artists, we'd have the wealthy, the aristocracy. Um, We'd also have social critics, so critics on social um, issues, prison, um, women's rights, um, the poor, healthcare, things like that as well as the commercial elite. So the commercial elite are your merchants, your people who are rich due to trade. Um, And women 
would be the centers for the flourishing of these ideas. So they would allow these ideas to come to light, to be able to be spread in, in like polite society. So that's how it really kind of gained a foothold. What was these upper class, very well-to-do in society women allowing these ideas to be spread amongst within society, especially the upper, upper escalate accolades of society, um, or upper, upper levels of society. Um, without that, they wouldn't have been as influential. Now we do see that North America has a very, um, kind of positive perception in Europe. Um, the views of the North American colonies were that they were kind of like a social experiment. Um, Europeans believed that human nature unconstrained um, would produce an abundance um, as well as social justice. So they would produce product and things in abundance like in huge quantities as well as have these new ideas of social justice like it's a totally different era Um, they don't think that they have anything kind of similar to europeans that they are kind of like natural or in nature because north america is kind of like virgin land untouched um unsoiled by corruption or years of you know living so it was a very viewed as the north american colonies were viewed as a social experiment to the europeans um, and then, of course, we have Benjamin Franklin. He's an American intellectual inventor, um, helped negotiate um, French support for the American Revolution. He was one of the framers, um, very important in American society, but very important to foreign affairs, especially early American foreign affairs. He was a huge um, help in France. So Benjamin Franklin was instrumental in three things in creating the Philadelphia Free Library, so one of the first libraries, free to the public, um, the American Philosophical Society, and the University of Pennsylvania. So he helped kind of create and bring about these three institutions. He invented bifocals, the lightning rod, and the wood-burning stove. And he is kind of known as a genius by the Europeans. America, America equals genius. Like we have all these amazing thinkers coming together, um, specifically in this regards, Benjamin Franklin. Um, and this is due to all the intellectuals. So Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, you'd have um, John Hancock, um, George Mason, John Madison, um, John Adams, all these kind of intellectuals, Thomas Jefferson, all kind of being these superstars or rock stars in this period. So Benjamin Franklin was a delegate. In 1754, um, he helped or kind of... 1754, he published his ideas, his experiments, some of his major innovations in experiments and observations on electricity. And then in 1776, of course, he was a delegate of the Continental Congress um, in Philadelphia. And he helped to kind of reword the Declaration of Independence and helped get support for the signing of the Declaration of Independence and all that. Um, In Europe, his role was as an ambassador to France, specifically Paris. Um, And he was a superstar in French society. He had a ton of girlfriends even though he was married and had children back in America. Um, So he had a lot of affairs in Paris, um, and he had a lot of support. um, And he played the role. So he knew kind of what the French wanted to see as an American, kind of like the stereotypical American. He'd wear, you know, stereotypical outfits or hats because it was what the French thought, and the French kind of ate it up and loved it. So Benjamin Franklin knew how to play the game, and he was very skilled at it. Um... We also have this idea of the freeing of human potential, um, which is another view of America and another view of this kind of newly birthed nation of America or would-be nation, kind of the the yearling that would be America. And 
the freeing of human potential came from the freeing of inherited privilege um, and this idea that in America and in this area, anybody can can succeed. You didn't have to be wealthy. You didn't have to have inherited your station. You could be from poverty and build yourself up. Like it was kind of like that American dream where this is where we can see the roots of the American, the stereotypical American dream. Like if you come here, it doesn't matter if you have nothing in your pocket, you could build yourself up. You can like a self-made man or self-made individual. Um, We also see that government authority rested on the consent of the governed. So this goes back to that ideology of John Locke and Rousseau, that the governed are the ones that allow the leadership to be leaders and be in charge. So without the consent of the governed, nothing's going to work, you know, ideally. So we're going to go ahead and move on to section three, frontiers and taxes. So we did see that conflict between the British and the French. um, And after the French and Indian War, or also known as the Seven Years War, um, what did colonists want to do? So the American colonists are all about expansion. Now they're wanting to expand. They're wanting to spread out. It's kind of getting a little crowded in those early colonies. Um, So they wanted to settle and push past the Appalachians. So they were really wanting to take away Indian land or native lands. They wanted to encroach on those regions, basically, if we want to be blunt about it. Um, And the British were reluctant, to say the least. So they put things in place to kind of hinder that, um, which we'll see in a little bit. But, But after the French and Indian War, we see the British having a lot of financial issues. Um, they had, they, you know, racked up a lot of debt due to this conflict and they wanted the colonists to help pay, which, you know, technically really isn't such a bad idea. Like you're part of this empire, you're part of this, um, country. Like we're giving, we're benefiting you by defending you and like supplying you things. You can help us by paying taxes, which, you know, we do in the United States today. Um, but, the colonists weren't really happy about it. Um, the colonists were mad um, that they had to pay for the defensive costs of the war, the recent conflict, and that they were limited um, on where they could settle. Like the British were saying, no, you cannot settle past the Appalachians. They were placing restrictions on the colonists, and that was another reason they were upset. Um, the British government by the colonists were then seen as oppressive and as tyrants, kind of as like these people who are just coming in and telling us what to do and, you know, just coming out of nowhere. Kind of like the teenager versus the parent when the teenager doesn't get their way, you know. Um, and when the British defeated the French, they kind of took over their region. They took over everything east of the Mississippi, even all the way up north into Canada. So they took a lot of regions or areas the French once once held. And the French had many relationships with the local populations, so the Iroquois, the uh, Mohawks, the Ottawas, um, and these relationships weren't being taken care of as the French had left them. So the British would not give gifts to the American Indians, they would not pay them rent um, for the lands that they used or encroached on, and they were not paying the Amer Indians fur prices that the French were, they were actually paying them a lot less than the French were paying them. So they were not solidifying good relationships with those populations. But the British would trade with them and they would trade several things with them and that would be alcohol, textiles, guns, um, and just other goods like tea, um, you know, just commodities. Uh, Pontiac was an Ottawa chief um, and he fought the British in their encroachment on the American Indian lands. So he is upset, like anybody would be, um, for people coming into his territory and taking over the region, kind of pushing his people out. So he is fighting against the British. Um, we do see the British trying to stop colonial encroachment on these lands. And the first instance is the Proclamation of 1763. Um, And this is established a Western limit for settlement. So they couldn't go past this proclamation line. They were like, this is the line. You cannot settle past this area because we're not going to start another fight with the native population. We want to have good relations with them. So you cannot 
settle anywhere past this. Now, did Americans listen or the colonists listen? No, they settled past it. And we see some issues with Native Americans due to the colonists not listening. Um, We also have the Quebec Act of 1774, which further limited Western expansion. It was just where the British annexed Quebec um, in order for um, the colonists not to expand and hurt the Native populations. Um, The above two proclamations or acts of parliament um, were seen by the colonists as hostile and suspicious. They're like, you guys are not letting us be free and not letting us do what we want to do. And in that, they started becoming suspicious of their leadership of parliament and and of how parliament was treating them when they weren't being represented. This is where we get the no taxation without representation and no no positive representation or, you know, qualifying representation in parliament. So we do see some things become regulated. So molasses became regulated in 1764. Um, and we see this as a way for Britain to increase their um, economic interests. The colonists had ties to France and Spain. They were trading with them in secret a lot of the time because, you know, France and Spain were enemies of England. Um, So they were trading with them in secret. But now the British are saying, no, you cannot trade with any enemy of the crown. You have to trade solely with the British. And the colonists didn't like that because, of course, they would have to pay more. Um, Why would I want to pay more when I can just secretly pay less over here? Um, So they were upset about that. We also see that the British um, outlawed paper money that was printed in the colonies. So paper money was outlawed and disrupted colonial economic balances. Um, They didn't want the colonies to print their own money anymore. They had to use the British form of money. And that kind of upset the economic systems in the colonies. We also see boycotts starting within the colonies. And these were just boycotts of consumer goods. Um, Anything that was British made, the colonists were now boycotting. So they weren't going to buy tea. They weren't going to buy playing cards that were made in England. They were going to buy things that were made um, in the colonies or they would make it themselves. Um, We also see that in 1765, Parliament passes the Stamp Act, the first Stamp Act, and it was a tax on legal documents, newspapers, and pamphlets. They also pass another um, Stamp Act in 1766, and that's just further taxes on other goods, paint, um, playing cards, things like that, Um, stamps, and all that stuff. Um, What did Parliament do um, as a result of kind of protests and aggravation and tension in the colonies. They deployed British troops and they created even more taxes and more acts. So this is where we see the Quartering Act. Um, We see um, the Tea Act, the Sugar Act, and all these ones that kind of really break as like the straw that broke the camel's back for the colonists. Um, Women played a predominant role in American colonial society and that was the prominent women. Again, wealthy women um, played crucial role in organizing Um, boycotts, making homemade goods, kind of um, supporting the movement or supporting um, autonomy in the colonies. So British goods were boycotted. And then, of course, we have tar and feathering, which is the pouring of hot tar. And then right when the hot tar is poured, they put feathers on you. It was a very painful experience, excruciating, where the individual would be most of the time you know, taken, probably roughed up a little bit, beaten up, and then they'd be put on display, tar and feathered. Um, most of the time, the, not most of the time, all the time, the peeling of the tar off would take layers of skin off. It was very, very painful and scarring to the individual that experienced it. Um, we also see the Boston Massacre, which occurred on March 5th, 1770, which was where British soldiers fired on non-armed civilians who were throwing um, snowballs filled with rocks at the soldiers because they were angry that they were occupying the city. Um, Now, was it right that the (laughs) colonists were throwing snowballs at the soldiers? No. Um, But did the soldiers have to shoot them? Probably not. They could have done a different way, but it was... I don't know. I have feelings on the situation, but I probably won't express them here. We also see that warships and two regiments of soldiers um, were deployed to the colonists, 2,000 soldiers, 
and this is right before the Boston Massacre, I'm backpedaling, um, this was in, in response to those initial boycotts. So we were seeing that the British are acknowledging the tension and acknowledging the um, aggravation of the colonists. And to kind of quell these rebellions or these little revolts that were occurring, they sent military power to the colonists to kind of like scare them, but it actually just angered them. <laughs> and we see the Boston Massacre happen. Um, And then, of course, we have the British East Indian Company, uh, which was granted a monopoly on imported tea. So basically, this is saying that if you wanted tea, you could only buy it from the British East India Company. Um, And the colonists didn't like that. They were like, no, because it's super, super expensive. Why would I buy that when I can buy it cheaper over here through these people? No, you had to buy tea from them. That was the only place you could buy tea. Um, And of course, we have in response to that, we have the Boston Tea Party. Uh, which is when colonists dumped tea into the Boston Harbor and the tea that they dumped and destroyed was worth $1.2 million. Um, And it's like almost $5 million in today's money. So it was pretty devastating for the tea trade. So moving on to the course of revolution, 1775 to 1783, um, the patriot leaders, so the leaders of the colonists, of course, would be like your John Adams, your Ben, uh, Benjamin Franklin. These would be your patriot leaders. Um, also would be like George Mason, um, Thomas Jefferson. But then we also have our radical leaders, and those would be your Thomas Paine and, of course, your Samuel Adams. I'm not really going to go deep into American history because you guys will talk about this next year. Um, We also have loyalists who were just colonists who were loyal to the British crown. Um, Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts was the first violent interaction um, between colonists and the British. Um, You know, the shot her around the world. This is the first skirmish, kind of the first conflict of the revolution. George Washington, of course, was the nominated commander of the um, American militia or American army. And he would also turn become the first president. Um, Common Sense was an inflammatory pamphlet, and this was written by Thomas Paine, one of those radical leaders, Um, and it basically propelled the idea of independence. So he's kind of bringing up all these kind of grievances that the king is doing and what's not right, and he is the one that kind of initiates, you know, um, independence, like this idea of independence. And then, of course, July 4th, 1776, um, the delegates uh, approve the Declaration of Independence and they sign it. Um, and in response to this, we have the British sending troops. So they're sending 50,000 troops and 30,000 German mercenaries. Remember, your mercenaries are your hired soldiers. Um, now, the British also had help through a civilian network, and this was your loyalists or those people who supported the British crown, um, but they could not control the countryside. A large amount, a large you know, number of the population were loyal to the crown, um, but they didn't have the maybe either the money or the manpower or whatever to really kind of control and consolidate power within those country kind of rural areas. We also have the Iroquois Confederacy. We re- we talked about this a while ago. Um, it's just six native tribes that fought um, together and were a confederate um, group, but they fought on both sides. So you had some of them fight for the American and the colonists, and you had some of them fight for the British. Um, Joseph Bryant was a Mohawk leader, and he was a Mohawk that supported, was an individual that supported the British crown. So he was a loyalist. Um, and what happened to him? What happened to Bryant? Um, well, he... Had, in the end, would have to flee to Canada because, you know, the British lose and he's basically wanted by the colonists, so he flees. Um, General Horatio Gates um, has a major success at the Battle of Saratoga. He defeats the British in 1777, um, and he is the one that goes after the Mohawks, and he attacks them and defeats Joseph Bryant and his tribe. Um, In 1778, we see that the French are convinced of American success and they enter the war and with the help of um, the French and uh, Lafayette we see the success of the American Revolution. It's really without the help of the French the Americans probably would have lost to be perfectly honest which is sad because in the French due to debt due to their crippling debt and kind of corrupt social system we see them fall to revolution as well. So 
So General uh, Cornwallis surrenders in 1781 at the Battle of Yorktown, which is predominantly fought by the French. Um, You do have American soldiers fighting there too, but he is surrounded um, and he surrenders and that's the end of the war. And then of course we have the Treaty of Paris in 1783. It's just the unconditional surrender, um, unconditional independence for the colonists and the establishment of boundaries that the colonies are no longer a part of Britain. Um, They are just, you know, on their own. Um, and then we go into the Constitution of Republican Institutions to 1800. Um, so what fascinated Europeans about the American Revolution, which was this kind of anomaly, this had never happened before, at least successfully happened before, um, but the Americans and the colonists some, somehow succe- succeeded in this instance. Um, they were fascinated that they actually wrote and drafted a constitution And that they ratified the Constitution and that they all agreed that, okay, this is great. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to unite. So they were fascinated by this kind of creation of this new nation out of like nothing. Um, Executive powers in the new nation were limited um, and legislative powers were given very broad. Um, So the legislative body basically kind of had more power than the executive party. Um, Constitutional Convention was a meeting in 1787, um, and this was to elect representatives to write the Constitution. So each colony um, sent a representative or sent representatives to represent them, you know, say what that colony needed, what was in the interest of those colonies to write up this constitution. So we do see the three branches of government are your legislative, executive, judicial. Um, Authority was divided between federal or national government and state or local government, Um, big and little government kind of. And then of course we have our houses, the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, The chief executive um, came up with at the, at the Constitutional Convention, we had different things that they were discussing. So, of course, slaves um, under the Constitution were not citizens, and they were d- denied participation because you had to be a citizen in order to participate. Um, so they are not citizens. They are property um, in the eyes of the law. Um, and then, of course, we have the Three-Fifths Compromise, which is where the southern states were permitted um, to count slaves as, uh, as Three-Fifths. So... Um, three slaves would equal like one individual or something like that. Um, and they ended up being able to use the large slave population to their advantage to have more representation or have, um, more pool or more leeway in government. Um, so it was kind of like a crappy, really terrible institution. And then, of course, the South asked for a 20-year continuation of the slave trade. After that 20 years, they would abolish the slave trade. That did not abolish slavery. It just abolished the trading of slaves. So they stopped um, importing African slaves to um, America. And then, of course, we have the Fugitive Slave Clause, which is where all states must return runaway slaves, no matter where. If they reach the North, which had many of the northern states were free states, um, or many of the northern colonies were free colonies, sorry, not states yet, um, that they would have to return those slaves to their southern masters. Um, of course, women were denied political rights. They could not vote. They had no representation in, in society. They were also seen as children um, in society, you know, their social standing. Um, except in New Jersey. New Jersey did initially grant the vote to women and free Africans who met the property requirements. So if you owned a certain amount of property, um, you had the right to vote if you were a free African or if you were a woman. Um, but then that was abolished in 18, 1807, so it didn't last very long. Um, now we move on to... French society and the fiscal crisis. So what's going on in France after the American Revolution? So... The population of France was 28 million people of the whole entire country. Um, And we see society broken up into three estates, so three classes. So your first estate is made up of the clergy. So this is your church uh, members, your priests, your bishops, um, things like that. And that was about 130,000 individuals. And the first estate owned 10% of the land in France. And they made their money by tithes or patronage or, you know, donations or um, yearly annual um, kind of, uh, not membership, but annual 
um, charges to people, as well as just fees. Um, and they had to pay very, very few taxes. Now, they... It wasn't that they didn't have to pay taxes. They had very few or, or very, very little taxes to pay compared to the third estate. Um, our second estate is made up of the nobility. And this is about 300,000 individuals. Um, and they own 30% of the land. And they made their money many ways. Most of the time it was inherited. Um, but through wholesale trade, through banking, through manufacturing. And they did not pay taxes. Um... They, learned, they they owned a third of the nation's land. Um, or sorry, sorry, I'm messing up. Um, then we had the third estate. Move back. And this was the bourgeoisie. Um, and this was made up of everybody else in the country. So this included literally everybody else. Um, you had this estate own a third of the nation's land. Um, they made their money through commerce, through finance, through manufacturing, and they paid taxes. Everybody had to pay taxes. If you were part of the third estate, you paid taxes. So there's only really two estates that pay taxes, and the majority of the taxes is paid by the third estate. Um, peasants uh, made up 80% of the third estate, so a lot of the third estate was peasants or the poor. Um, other groups within the third estate included your artisans, your shopkeepers, small landowners, financiers, and beggars. We do see in 1780, so right before um, the American Revolution ends, we do have a very poor harvest, which did ultimately increase the cost of living, which forced people um, into poverty or forced people into homelessness and begging, and it led to a decline in the demand for products or demand of goods. Um, it also affected children who um, sought seasonal work outside of their homes. Um, they also depended on charity. Um, we see the city conditions very unhealthy, very unsanitary. Um, the streets were filled with filth, excrement, the diets were unhealthy, um, there was a lot of crime, um, and about twelve to 15,000 people lived in cities, so it was very crowded. Um, we also see that 40,000 children estimated were orphaned due to, you know, these bad harvests and due to increased taxes and just due to, you know, increased poverty. And we also see that Henry, um, not Henry, sorry, um, King Louis the 16th would not tax the nobles so he's like he tried to do everything in his power to not tax the nobles he tried to borrow money and he tried to do all these different things but he was like no i'm not taxing the nobles um he kind of refused and that kind of put him in the hole eventually um why was france in debt well it was because it was the supporting the united states in the revolution um that was the major thing um france needed to do um institute across the board tax reform so what they could have done was tax everybody tax the church tax the nobles tax lessen the tax of the third estate still tax them but lessen it and increase the tax of the other two estates that could have really helped their situation but we do see that them not instituting these tax reforms um, would turn into violent protests and violent revolution so we do move on to protest turns to revolution in 1789 to 1792, the Estates General uh, or General, Estate is the France's National Assembly. So, kind of think of like Parliament or legislature or the legislative branch. It is their National Assembly where they come and they pass laws and things like that. Um, how did they vote? So, you had your three estates. The first estate voted against the tax because, you know, they're the clergy. Nobles voted against the tax. The third estate wanted representation. So, they wanted to vote for representation. They wanted a constitutional monarchy. They wanted change. The third estate, which was the majority of the population, wanted change. But the two higher estates did not listen to the majority voice. Um, so, the third estate wanted political and economic reform. The Estates General would change into the National Assembly, and that would be the new name. They just renamed it, and it would be the new kind of assembly body where they would go and discuss reform and discuss situations, economic and political situations. We do see that 
King Louis the Sixteenth um, is very reluctant to talk and very reluctant to negotiate with the Third Estate. That he kind of bars the Third Estate from participating in the Estate General. And so what they do is they go to a tennis court, and this is where we see the tennis court oath. They move their assembly away, and basically they take the tennis court oath oath which is where people are sovereign rulers and they are the ones that choose who is in leadership that you know we are really the ones in charge and we need to choose who we who should lead our country they have no right to rule us and kind of these really drenched in the American um, revolution, really drenched in enlightenment ideals. The king reacted with military force, so he was afraid, so he posted military um, and soldiers all across Versailles, um, and the people were very upset and kind of um, felt betrayed by kind of this reaction by the king. Um, at this time, we also pe- see that people were ve- were unemployed. There was high unemployment. Um, people were hungry. People were starving um, due to poor harvest, due to just the expense of food. And people were angry. So when you have these, this is kind of like the perfect combination of revolution. Uh, we do see the storming of the Bastille, which is in July. And it is the Bastille is a medieval fortress. At that time, it was used as a prison. And we see that the peasants are storming the Bastille. Um, they're not storming to free the prisoners. They're really storming to steal the weapons that are inside. So they're trying to arm themselves. So they're going into the Bastille to steal the weapons because it was also an armory, um, not to free the prisoners, but to steal the weapons to arm themselves against the government. Um, we also see that on their way, as they're storming the Bastille, they're also um, murdering guards, murdering you know, um, share, you know, people in power that they see that are kind of against the revolution. They're killing them. Um, they're cutting off their heads and putting them on spikes and parading them through the streets so everybody can see. So it's kind of like chaos is going on. Um, in the countryside, we do see similar. So it's not just happening in the um, urban areas, but in the rural areas, we see um, peasants sacking manors, burning them down, killing the gentry, killing um, the landowners, destroying um, economic documents that showed the kind of taxes that people had to pay. So they were destroying those so they wouldn't have to pay taxes. Um And we see after this the creation of the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is just the fundamental political rights that the National Assembly were adopting. So think of like the Declaration of Independence, but like the French version, that all men um, are given these rights and these are the natural rights. Um, Women at this time were immensely upset. Many women worked um, at this time, um, but they did not make enough money in order to feed their families. They were watching their children starve to death. They were watching their families starve to death. Um, They were just angry. Like, they did not know what to do. So, in response, you have the women's march to Versailles demanding bread. So, the women's bread march um, to Versailles at the gates of Versailles, like, yelling and with armed, wanting food, wanting the government, wanting the king to provide for them. Um, October 5th, we see several things happen. Um, This is that march to Versailles of the women. Um, The women are marching for food. Um, They're standing outside initially protesting. Um, Eventually, they storm the palace. The king and queen escape. Uh, King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette escape. They do run, um, but they do kill the king's guards. Um, Some of the king's guards, not all of them. Um, And they initially were hunting for the queen. They saw the queen as a symbol of extravagance um in all the kind of popular newspapers and like kind of magazines at the time they exaggerated um kind of what she said you know how we always see let them eat cake um that is not the type of cake that we think of today um she's not talking about like sweet dessert cake at that time cake was basically like a um a very very poor non-nutritious bread it was like made out of um, like the worst ingredients kind of put together in like a cake form um, but it tasted awful and it was like not nutritious but it, it it would fill your stomach but that's kind of what she was saying but she really didn't say that you know it was kind of like the gossip rags the lies like no one knows if she actually said that most of the time most historians say that she wasn't quoted saying that, that it was kind of just um, fuel for the fodder, you know? So, kind of like, 
emotions. Um, but she was seen as, you know, a symbol of extravagance. She did raise a lot of debt. She did have a lot of gambling debt. She did did buy a lot of dresses, did, you know, all this. But, you know, she was the queen. What do you think the queen's going to do, you know? Um, but anyway, she was forced to flee with her husband. Um, and the people created a new constitution and the constitution ended up limiting the monarch's power and it also abolished the nobility class so the constitution the french people created limited monarch powers so it didn't abolish the monarchy but it limited their power so like a constitutional monarchy um and it abolished the noble noble class um the legislative assembly did two things seized church land and they forced priests priests to take a loyalty oath to france so remember it's the catholic church so they're forcing the catholic priests to pay loyalty to france not to rome not to the papal loyalty but to france Um, we also see that by 1791 austria and prussia are watching this remember austria um is where um marie antoinette is from she's an austrian princess um so her mother is watching kind of all this her brother is kind of watching all this prussia is also another ally of marie antoinette and of austria so by 1791 they're watching all this play out and are threatening to intervene um and then we have another period in history that we will come So we're going to go ahead and move on to the terror, which was a year long from 1793 to 1794. Um, This is also the period of the reign of terror where it's like complete chaos. People are getting murdered and arrested and all this stuff. So it's crazy. So initially King Louis and Queen Marie Antoinette um, try to escape. They have a failed escape. Um, And what ends up happening is they are stopped by the rebels and they are captured and imprisoned um we do see the national convention being created which is just the new legislative um and executive body of the new um new country new nation um and we also see that there were hints of counter-revolutionary plots so kind of to reinstate the um noble family reinstate the royal family um and that these kind of ideas and these kind of rumors spreading around society um, really kept the working class neighborhoods in an uproar, made them very, very suspicious, made them very on edge, kind of kept that um, emotions running high. So it was a really tense time. We also see the creation of the guillotine, um, which was invented in 1793. um, And it was what would kill and be the um, method of execution for many people, including Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Um, We do see that the invention of the guillotine is due to trying to find a more humane way to kill people and a faster way to kill people. We do see at this time many people are being executed and it's not going fast enough. We have hangings, but hangings can take a long time. We have beheadings, but beheadings can take a long time. And this is a, an example of beheading, but it's very fast. And you kill a lot of people quickly um, with a guillotine. But it's a more humane way of death because the idea behind it is that the person doesn't feel it because it's immediate. It's not where it takes a couple times to hack off the head like most Um, beheadings were it could take several times to get the head hacked off it could be very painful for the victim this was sliced right through um we do see uh the jacobins come to power so the jacobins were radical republicans and they were led by maximilian robespierre um and they were just the ones that kind of were out to get everybody kind of kill everybody um very very scary in group Uh, maximilian robespierre was a provincial lawyer initially um he is the one that will lead the french revolution and is the most radical is the leader of the most radical phase of the french revolution so the reign of terror is definitely associated with robespierre and he is definitely responsible for all of it um 
we see the insti- institution of commi- the, the Committee of Public Safety, um, which is just a series of courts. And these courts sought out enemies of the state. And when they found these enemies of the state, they would bring them to trial. And most of the time they were found guilty and they were punished, executed, or imprisoned were their options. Um, women at this time were repressed by the new government. Initially, when women were um, armed and fighting against the monarchy and fighting um, during the actual rebellion, the early phases, um, they were supported. But now under the new government, they are being repressed and they're being told, no, you need to go back to your position in society. Um, We no longer need you. Um, The Reign of Terror was the year 1793 to 1794. It was only a year long. And it was a period of repression where we see 40,000 people killed by the guillotine and 300,000 imprisoned. Um, Another new invention during this period was the change in the calendar and Sundays. So we do see 12 30-day months um, created and we see a 10-day a week so each month had three weeks instead of four um, and we also see that the Sundays were removed so Sundays were removed from the calendar under this period um, and we do see that at the height of the reign of terror Robespierre is you know at the height he has all the power but we do see him in eventually fall um, and when he fell from power he fell hard um, He was tried, convicted, and he was sentenced to death, um, and he was killed. Um, So he met a grisly end like many of the people he sentenced to death. We do see a response to the French Revolution, and this is the period of the rise of Napoleon. So from 1795 to 1815. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte was initially a private. He was a soldier um, who made who worked his way up to general, and he would overthrow the French Directory or would overthrow this kind of like chaotic new government. Um, and he came up with a new way of ruling, which was called popular authoritarianism. So think of it as like choosing a dictator. So you have a dictator, and he is loved by the people. And it's like chosen dictatorship. Like they're choosing to be run by a dictator, you know? Um, So that's kind of what popular authoritarianism is, simply put. Napoleon promised three things, an end to the crisis, an end to the turmoil, and an end to the bloodshed. So he's like, I'm going to promise all these things. I'm going to bring society to order my way. Um, The Concordat of 1801 um, basically allowed for the right to freely practice Catholicism. Um, So people could practice their religion again. It wasn't kind of like a hush-hush taboo thing anymore. And we also see in 1804 that he won the support of the peasantry and working class. So now he has the majority of the population supporting him, so he's good to go. Um, Under the Napoleonic era, we see women are denied political rights, continue to have their, their rights denied. And they're only allowed to participate in economic ventures, so they can only work. They can't have any other say. Um... Individual rights are denied and restricted, um, free speech is limited, and opposition disappears. So there's no opposition to the government. There's no such thing as opposition to Napoleon's government. It does not exist under his rule. Um, The French military under Napoleon was initially undefeated. Um, They could not be defeated by anybody until the British stepped in. And the British um, were the only ones that could thwart Napoleon's power um, and Napoleon's plan for further expansion. So they're the ones that really kind of step up in Europe during the Napoleonic era. Um, The Battle of Trafalgar is between France and Spain, and it takes place on the southernmost tip of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, And it was very, very costly. Um, The Spanish um, really kind of drew it out. It took long. It was very costly. It was very frustrating. Um, Napoleon ended up taking over Spain, um, Warsaw, and the Confederacy of the Rhine. So those were his areas along with France and parts of Italy. Um, In June of 1812, Napoleon decided it was a good idea to invade Russia. Um, The first time we see in history, never invade Russia. Napoleon. We'll see it again in World War I, and we'll see it again in World War II. They do not learn, Um, but Napoleon is the first one not to learn. 
and he initially invades Russia with 600,000 uh, men, but comes out only with 30,000 men because they go in winter, and that is not a good time to go. Um, he had a lot of enemies in it, eventually over time. Um, so we do see Austria, Prussia, England, and Russia all come together and ally against France and begin to fight France. Um, and in 1814, he Napoleon is forced out. He abdicates his throne as emperor, um, and he is exiled to Elba. Elba is an island off the coast of Italy, um, and he's there in exile. Uh, we do see him come back um, from exile in the Battle of Waterloo, and for a hundred days he is back in power. He is fighting until he is um, defeated by the British at Waterloo. Um, at Waterloo, he is defeated by um, uh, Lord Wellington, um, and he's done. He is exiled finally to St. Helena, and he dies there in 1821. Um, so he doesn't have a, a long, peaceful life there. You can skip the read and the answer the question of Robespierre and Wollstonecraft. We don't have to read that. Um, and we're just going to go ahead and move on to the Haitian Revolution and wrap this up. So the Haitian Revolution was in response to the French Revolution entirely. Um, Haiti was a French colony, and um, the revolution took place during the French Revolution, kind of like as the French Revolution and Napoleonic era were occurring, this is what was happening as well. This was going on kind of in the background. While all this chaos was happening in France, the Haitians and the colonists in Haitian kind of took advantage of the situation and kind of ran with independence for themselves too. So Saint-Dominique uh, was very important um, to France because it was a major producer of sugar, cotton, indigo, coffee, and it was the richest French colony. It was the richest. Um, Two-thirds of France's tropical imports came from Haiti, and a third of all foreign trade was from Haiti. Um, so Haiti is a, a jewel in the French colonies. Um, slaves were highly needed by the colony um, for the success of the market. So without slavery and without the use of slaves, the French import and exports couldn't have been as successful as they were. Um, we do see whites were the minority, but they owned most of the land. Like in many colonies, white populations were the smaller population, but they had the most power. We also have another population called the Gens de Couleur. Uh, the Gens de Couleur uh, were a group of mixed-raced population in Haiti. So they were white and black, or native and black, or um, native and white they were kind of like this mixed um population in haiti and colonial rule at this time was slipping um it was kind of set on the back burner it wasn't a priority for the french the french and france were focusing on france they wanted to recreate france as a country and they saw that this was their time to do it um, and they weren't kind of focusing on anything else this is why we see kind of the haitians running with this um endeavor um, rich planners, your poor whites, and your gen de couleur uh, wanted more control over the politics and ec the economy of the island. Um, and they want engendering for all. They kind of wanted equality for all um, to kind of not have slavery and get rid of these discrimination, social discrimination and racial discrimination. Um, and they wanted political and economic autonomy. Um, Vincent Oji um, was a mis mixed race leader and what ends up happening is he's being sent to France as um, kind of a representative of the Jeanne de Couleur um, and the Jeanne de Couleur uh, you know highly supported him sent him but on his way he is abducted by white planters and he is tortured and he um, is executed and the Jeanne de Couleur and the slaves are very upset about this. They are like distraught and angered. And so we really see the Jeanne de Couleur and the white population fighting. And while this is going on, we see the slaves rebel. So they're like, oh, they're fighting. Oh, we're going to fight. So they're rebelling to get out of slavery as well. Uh, Francois Dominique Toussaint L'Overture. Uh, 
again, that is Francois Dominique Toussaint L'Ouverture. Uh, he is the leader of the Haitian Revolution. He is kind of like the poster child for the revolution, whereas we see like when we think of the American Revolution, we tend to think of like Thomas Jefferson, or we think of Benjamin Franklin, or we think of George Washington. Uh, uh, Toussaint is the poster child of the Haitian Revolution, like Robespierre for France or Napoleon. Toussaint is Haiti. Um, in 1794, we do see the abolishment of slavery in Haiti. In 1798, four years later, um, the French defeat British forces that are kind of kind of taking advantage of the situation. The British kind of come in um, in 1798, encroach, but the Haitians are like, nah, stop right there. You are not coming in here. We are defeating you. And they defeated them. Um, Santo Domingo uh, was the nearby island where slavery um was still instituted and Toussaint takes it upon himself to go to this island I believe it's under Spanish rule um go to this island and free the slaves so he frees the slaves under Spanish rule kind of just helps out um in 1802 Napoleon does send forces to Haiti to reinstate slavery and reinstate colonial authority in Haiti um but that fails um but Toussaint also fails because he is captured and he is sent to France where he is imprisoned. He does die of yellow fever um, there and it's not a good time. But two years later, after Napoleon tries to kind of regain control of Haiti in 1804, the Haitians receive independence. They are given their independence and it is done. Um, At the end of the revolution, um, Haitians are very hopeful. They're full of hope. They want to imitate the United States. Um, but we do see that they do have a lot of issues still. Um, and we do see those kind of issues from 200 and something years ago still being seen today in Haitian society where they have a still very messed up economic system and very corrupt and messed up um, political system. So we do see the trends from colonization and the colonizers still kind of affecting modern day um, Haitian government and economics. Um, and to finish out, we have the Congress of Vienna and the uh, conservative retrenchment, which is from 1815 to 1820. Uh, the Congress of Vienna just was the conference of how we are going to reestablish power in Europe after this kind of debacle we saw with France. Um, so it was really to reestablish order, to um, stra- uh, stabilize France, um, bring back the survival of the monarchy. Remember, the monarchy is a very institutional um, government in, in Europe, and they did not want that to be lost. So we see them trying to re-strengthen the idea of monarchy. Um, it also was to guarantee peace. And we see the creation of the Holy Alliance, which was the alliance between Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Um, and that is it. We are done with chapter 21. Um, so listen through this. Make sure you complete these notes. Turn them in. This is a new semester. This is your first chapter of the semester. So make sure you complete this and turn it in so I can give you some good grades. Um, and... Let's have a really good semester and finish strong. Okay, I'll talk to you guys later in episode 8, chapter 23. Talk to you later. Bye.